I'm Euro. I'm Chris. And this is Fork Bomb. Wednesday, June 7, 2017, Episode 11, Exploring the Commodore 64. So we have with us again Eric Renfro, who has co-hosted with us a couple of times already, and we're having him back because the Commodore 64 was his first computer. So welcome back, Eric. Well, thank you, Chris. So before we get into the nitty-gritty details, what was it like having an 8-bit computer as your first machine, if you had to uh, condense that into into a tweet? Hmm. Well, it was an amazing machine back then. I mean, it made anything else out there pretty much garbage, is, as far as I'm concerned. So, as a first computer, it was amazing, and it, can, and it could do so much. It was one of the first computers that we, uh, my house actually had, besides the Commodore Pet. So I actually had both. <laughs> so, oh, very neat. The Commodore 64 is more commonly known as the C64. It was the successor to the VIC-20, also made by Commodore. Yes. Euro. Yes. Yes. And what, aside from having superior sound and graphics when compared to the likes of the Apple II or the Atari uh, 800, was that it cost just five hundred and ninety-five dollars which made it very popular with home users. And that was in 1980s dollars, which should give you an idea for just how expensive other computers back then were. Even $595, it was, uh, back then, it was, in nowadays money, I think I saw it somewhere around $1,400 in nowadays. So, um, yeah, I mean, the IBM PCXT was... I actually don't know the exact price, uh, but but it was definitely in the thousands of it dollars. It was, yeah. <laughs> did you get Did you get yours at uh, full price, Eric? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, uh, I know my dad had done a lot of uh, drafting work at the time, so he was able to pick them up from work for work uh, for various different prices. So, kind of, I think we got hand me downs and good money back then at the time. Hmm. But yeah, uh, the uh, pet. That he had, he never let us use the pet, but uh, he got the Commodore 64 as the family computer. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Do you happen to uh, to know if the pet was more expensive than the Commodore 64? Oh, definitely, because it had the tape drive built in, a floppy drive built in, and a screen built in. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Huh? Yeah, the Commodore 64 was actually designed to be cheaper for consumers because it could hook up into a TV, which was the first time you could really do that. Sure, yeah. A lot of them came with the RF output, um, so so that's why you you could do that. Um, although hooking it up to the monitor was the was the best option, but uh, definitely a more expensive option. Yep. So the Commodore sixty four competed against the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System and the Sega Master System in games. Uh, I actually saw uh, and played quite a few games uh, for the Commodore sixty four, and I was uh, very surprised of the uh, technology behind uh, the the little Commodore 64. Um, they had an amazing sound chip and uh, and the graphics processor uh, known as the VIC-2. Um, amazing stuff. I mean, the, the games look, in my opinion, better than the Nintendo Entertainment System and Sega Master System games. 
So I was quite impressed for for a system that was made before uh, before both of those came out. Indeed, agreed. And they somehow even felt smoother. Uh, yeah, they definitely were. Right. And the joystick. The only difference between the NES and the and the Commodore sixty four was actually the joysticks because uh, you may know that the NES had the game con- game pad versus the jo- the Commodore sixty four actually had a real joystick which that that spongy feeling stick. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Um, actually, and, and you can actually hook up uh, Atari joypads to it. Um, anything with, I think it was a nine pin connector. Yes. Uh, you could use, uh, you could use on the, uh, on the Commodore 64. Um, so, uh, so the, the games played well. Um, there was tons and tons of games for them. Uh, and actually the majority were made in, uh, out in Europe. So uh, a lot of PAL formatted games, but still a lot of games for the system itself. Um, and I'm not quite sure if the Famicom was was first than the Commodore 64, um, since since I know that it was released out in Japan. Um, but I'll have to I'll have to go back at that. And and actually, Chris, you may want to edit that part out until I find out. So or or I can just put it in the show notes or something, in case the in case the Famicom came out first. But actually, I can actually answer that question for you. The uh, Famicom oh. actually came out in July 15th, 1983. The uh, perfect. The, the Commodore 64 came out in January of 1982. Yes, right. Um, and uh, I believe it was Comdex. So okay, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that, uh, Eric. I, I just wanted to make sure. So um, the the Commodore 64 was, of course, built by Commodore International. Uh, it was introduced in 1982 and was on the market until, believe it or not, 1993. So I don't know how many. Um, how many computers you guys have or have heard of that have been in the market for that long? Same specs, same machine, out for over a decade. Um, I think that's pretty much unheard of nowadays. That is true. I mean, in in my case, you know, uh, I we talked we just talked about the NES and Sega Master Systems. I didn't get those until after the Commodore sixty four was pretty much done and over with. Wow, <laughs> that's that's how amazing that's, that's, it was. Right, that's how much of an impact the Commodore sixty four had. And it still has a very strong following uh, from enthusiasts to this day. It does. Mainly people that aren't, are nostalgic for it. Um, but that also brings us to why we're doing this topic in the first place. Um, Euro, you and I never had a Commodore 64. In fact, I think I've only ever touched one, but have never seen it actually turned on. Um, so this is one of those... Wondering what times were like back then in an era that I'm not necessarily nostalgic for, just to get an idea of uh, what it was that that uh, we missed, why people seem to be so in love with this machine, even to this day, and figured it would be fun to um, speak with you, Eric, um, about it since it was your main machine for a good number of years. Exactly. I mean... As you say, I mean, as a comp- competitor for gaming, it was top of the line. I mean, it was literally top of the line before the Famicom, before the NES, and before the Sega Master System. And it would it, it would even supported multiplayer with two players at a time. I think that the uh, that the fact that the that the computer was so so cheap, um, and and not cheap as in as in the parts were cheap. It's just it's just the system itself was sold so cheaply to 
to uh, consumers that uh, it's remarkable how everybody was, well, everybody that was interested in computers um, or, or even parents that just wanted to teach their kids about computers were able to, to buy one, uh, you know, instead of, instead of, uh, you know, almost buying a car to, uh, to get an, uh, an IBM XT, um, I mean, even the PC Junior, all of these systems were pretty expensive, so, uh, families wouldn't be able to afford that. We definitely have a lot of people that are interested now in computers and that are programmers and engineers now and everything because their parents introduced them to the Commodore 64 or to computers with the Commodore 64. Definitely. So like, it, it's one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for me, example, I, I actually started programming on the Commodore, Commodore 64. So not only did I play games, I, I, I learned how to use computers. I learned how to program in basic. And then I even learned how to program in assembly language on the Commodore 64. <laughs> wow. So basic was, uh, basic two was your first, uh, pro- programming language then. Correct. Yeah. The, um, so, so, I, and I was actually a little bit confused at first uh, about what operating system that the Commodore 64 had. As, as Chris mentioned, um, I, I didn't have a Commodore 64. My father had a Commodore 64, but, you know, we never touched it or anything. He was, he used it for his business and whatnot. So I never had any direct experience with it. So I thought that there might be an operating system on there. And I soon learned that the operating system, quote unquote, was basic and it was loaded in ROM. So, uh, so in order to use it, you just had to learn the commands and, uh, make your own programs or, or just run them off disk. Uh, or as we'll soon talk about, off cassettes. The Commodore 64 also has some notable achievements. It's listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the highest selling single computer model of all time at over 17 million uh, units sold. It was uh, especially popular in Germany. Right. Um, in Europe uh, overall, I mean, there was a, in the UK, they had the ZX Spectrum. And they had the Amstrad, uh, CPC, um, but the Commodore 64 was definitely competing against those those two. So um, a lot of a lot of fantastic games came out from Europe. Uh, I want to say probably more so than the U.S. at the time, uh, because because so many people were using it. So um, and another thing too, I mean, I don't know how many households were able to afford. Uh, very expensive machines. So, and a lot of people couldn't justify the price for those. So, justifying the price for a Commodore 64 was a lot easier. Um, and there were also a ton of games for it. Like it's having looked at, having downloaded and a um a uh, ROM pack and just scrolling through it. There's easily as many games as there were on the NES. There were so many games built for it that uh, they actually decided to make a um a games console version of the Commodore 64. Uh, it was kind of a stripped down version of the Commodore 64, uh, no keyboard or anything like that. It had a joystick, uh, but uh, apparently it didn't really sell that well. But uh, that's how many games there were for it. Uh, it was it was built to compete against these, uh, these other uh, game consoles. So uh, really interesting stuff. But you know what? Another really interesting thing that the Commodore 64 brought out was the, uh, the computer demo scene. It was uh it was kind of born from the Commodore 64. The power of the Commodore 64 allowed very creative developers to to come up with programs uh that they could show off 
the power of the VIC-2 chip and, uh, and the SID chip, the sound chip. Um, so they would create these demos and kind of compete against each other. So uh, the demo scene is, is alive uh, even today. Uh, and, um, and I've seen some very impressive, uh, especially with the uh, sound ones, uh, seen some very impressive sounds uh, with, the, uh, with the SID chip. Um, very interesting stuff. Eric, um, about how many games did you have on your Commodore? Well, I had uh, several favorites that I had, like Load Runner, um, Dig Dug, uh, Choplifter from Broderbund, one of the one of their earliest games ever. Um, let's see, Lunar Lander or Jupiter Lander, as it was named later on. Um, Jump Man, you had that on cartridge actually. And let's see, Ghostbusters was one of my all-time favorites because it was the most one of the most interactive games that there were for the Commodore 64. Of course, the old traditional Frogger. Um, there was one other, I just can't remember the name of it, but it was so amazing and it was such a long game. And it was basically up, played in space. I just, it was like Space Invaders or something like that, but I just can't remember the name. And I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> how many of them were on floppy and how many were on tape? Most of mine were actually on floppy disk. I did have a couple on cartridge but i didn't have any games on tape hmm. there the the gap between games like the ones that the that the uh, atari 2600 had and the ones that commodore had is like a generational leap it's it's really that huge the and and the machine of course the the atari 2600 had come out before uh but still they they were both in the same market kind of around the same time and uh, and just the the graphics on the Commodore sixty four were were amazing. They they would blow away the Atari uh, when you compare them side by side. Uh, this kind of reminds me of the Amiga and how the Amiga was uh, far ahead of its time when it came out. And just the the graphics and everything uh, was another generational leap, and, and in a short amount of time. And did you know that Amiga was Commodore? Right. Yep. The <laughs> the Commodore Amiga. They, yes. Yes. Just just a little tidbit on that is that. Uh, later on down the scene, Amiga actually, uh, Amiga, the Amiga, the name, made a update keyboard frame for the Commodore 64, and it was like a the the, the Ferrari keyboard chassis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think um, it was all white, right? It was, I think. yeah. Uh, I'm not... And it was curvy, right? Right. Euro, you and I, we couldn't get our hands on an actual Commodore 64, and even if we could have. We wouldn't have had the time to have, um, we would have been lucky if we got one that was in working order, and we still would have had to go and get the software and stuff like that. So instead, we went the emulation route. Um, we used an emulator called uh, Vice. You used the Windows version, I used the Linux version, but it's the same piece of software. And me personally, I played uh, probably a few games on it. I uh, played with an operating system, and a music tracker, and felt like I got a decent feel for how one would generally operate a, uh, a C64. How about you? Uh, so the first thing was, uh, uh, once I started up the emulator, is uh, I was greeted with a blue screen that said ready, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I wasn't familiar with the Commodore 64, so I started looking up uh, different commands and things that I could could use and I ran into the very famous command that uh, probably most everybody would know and that is the load uh, quote star quote 
comma eight comma one. So that's that would be the that that would be the command that you would run to load any program on disk. So um, I got really curious. What what does that mean? Uh, I'd like to know the the syntax. So why it works the way it works. What are we doing there with load uh, star or wildcard eight one? What what does that mean? So I looked it up, and apparently the first part would mean a file name. So you're loading, and actually in this one, just being the star or wildcard, you're just loading any. So whatever the first file name it runs into, that's what you're loading. Um, other people that would have <clears throat> multiple programs on disk, they would they would actually specify the file name. But the of course I just looked up the uh, the first one, which was the wildcard. So that's that's what the first part means. Um, means the first file on disk, and then the first number parameter is a device number. So eight eight being the device number for the first disk drive. So you're going to load the first file on the disk drive. So that would be 8. And the second number parameter, uh, in this case being 1, that means to load the store program into memory. So altogether, you're loading the first file from the disk drive to memory. That's exactly what you're telling the Commodore 64 to do when you when you run that, uh, that famous command. And it should be mentioned that if you type just load by itself with, with, with nothing else, that means begin loading from the tape. Correct, yes. And also the, to note that device number was important if you had multiple floppy drives, like, for example, I did. Um, you would actually change the... If you wanted to access the secondary floppy drive, because they could daisy-chain them together, one drive after, plugged into the first drive, and then the second drive was, you know, just there. Um... If you wanted to load from the secondary drive, you would actually change the 8 to a 9, because that became device 9. Me personally, like I was saying, I played uh, a couple of games. I think I played uh, Whizball. I played um, a game called Master of the Lamps, which was really interesting. You're a genie, and you're on a flying carpet going through space, flying through little diamond things, and you have to like play a matching game, and then you fly through a harder fly through the diamonds level, and then you go into more puzzles. Um, and I also played a um, a popular uh, shoot 'em up game, kind of Contra style, but I for the life of me cannot remember the name of it. Um, I think I had the most fun though loading up a program called Cyber Tracker, which is a music tracker where you can uh, make your where you can program in your own music. And I loaded up a couple of the uh, demo songs and gave gave those a listen. And uh, Euro, you're right. I think that the original Sid chip that came in it did sound the best. I'm pretty sure that's the one that the emulator is emulating. And aside from that, uh, I played with... I loaded up a GOS, um, which honestly I couldn't get much to work. It was a very primitive-looking desktop. I clicked on a few things. It was horribly slow, but I had a hard time getting the uh, mouse to work properly, so I just kind of gave up. so why don't you tell me, Euro, about uh, your experience, and then Eric, uh, you uh, maybe you can give us some idea of what uh, just day-to-day life was like uh, with the Commodore. Uh, yeah, sure. So I uh, I also played a few games. Um, uh, the ones that I remember the most were um, R-Type. Uh, it was very similar to the uh, the version of uh, the one that I had played, which actually the first R-Type that I played was for the Turbo Graphics. So it, it kind of reminded me of that. Um, so I played R-Type, and I played, uh, believe it or not, I played Elvira, 
Mistress of the Dark. And uh, it's actually one of those that you would click around and uh, go around. It reminded me of old Ultima, but um, as far as the, the layout. and uh, But yeah, I played some of that. And uh, and some other uh, platformers like Jumpman that Eric mentioned, um, I played that as well. So uh, o- overall, I mean, uh, the games that I played were were all pretty fun, actually. Um, uh, they they were very much uh, comparable to the Sega Master System and Nintendo. So uh, with with better graphics and sound, in my opinion. Um, so that uh, that was my experience as far as. Uh, gaming was concerned. I was programming a little bit in basic. Uh, I already had a little bit of programming background in in uh, in, in Q basic uh, when I used to program in that back in back when I was in middle school. So I was able to um, to use some of those skills um, and I remember some commands. So uh, besides that, uh, I was looking up um, uh, various books on um, on, on other commands that I could run with the system, so the one like load and list and things like that. So, um, yeah, that that was uh, that was as, as much as I used on the actual system itself. Uh, it's great that you mentioned that you use Geos, uh, that being the GUI operating system that they had uh, come out with. Um, you know, for with that way you could use a mouse peripheral, and and they actually came out with some uh, Office programs like spreadsheets and and word processors and whatnot for the Commodore. So uh, it had it all. Um, it really did. I forgot to mention, um, I did try a little type-in program, too. Um, it was just a guessing game that was under the advanced basic section in the Commodore's, uh, uh, manual. I want to get a feel of, uh, what it was like trying to enter a program in on that thing. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. <laughs> uh, because even for a tiny program, um... You would get it all typed in. You would try to run it. There would be a problem, a syntax error, or it, it, it wouldn't work right. And then you had to go and find which line you you made the mistake on. And when you did find the mistake, say it was somewhere in the middle. Well, it, 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 it's not like a basic text editor where you, you backspace it. It drags all the text in front of the cursor with it. And then you type again, and then it pushes all the text in front of it out. No. You can backspace, sure, but then when you start typing, it starts overwriting text, and you have to retype the entire line. And unless I didn't know how to change the insert mode, as far as I can tell, that was how you made corrections. <laughs> wow, wow, yeah. Um, I had a bit more experience in that in that area, actually. Um, there was a way in programming Basic that you would just stop entering new th- new things, and you would actually just, if you wanted to make a correction. You could either just start typing the the same line number that you wanted to correct, and then type in the correct information that you wanted to be wanted it to be. Or if you needed something in between there, you would start li- your line numbering, and then basically, in, in a sense, you would do most of your line numbering in in terms of tens rather than one, two, three, four. You would go like ten, twenty, thirty, forty, so that you could make those additions and stuff like that. But in basic, you did have a limit of like 63,999 lines of code, which I've actually hit once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But um, some of the games that I end up playing that I loved, one of my favorites is actually Spy vs. Spy, and oh my god, that was like one of the best games ever. It was a single or dual player, and you were you were spies on in this island or on, I forget, this secret base, 
And if you were playing two players, you would be able to set up like little traps for everybody. Like somebody would open the door and they would be uh, filled with uh, uh, drop. They'd have this stuff that would drop on them and you'd kill them, you know. The goal was, of course, to get all the secrets. You had to get several pieces of uh, like a key to get onto the the plane or if you were playing the island version you would get all the pieces for the submarine and then you would essentially work against your opponent to kill them as many times as possible and get off the island before the time limit was up it was amazing (laughs) (laughs) sounds fun yeah and some of the other good games were uh load runner which was you know just a simple basic uh game that you would uh, it wasn't like a scrolling game or anything like that you would just but running around ladders and avoiding the enemies and stuff like that. And, you know, there was also the occasional jump man. But, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember one of the other ones that came out that I loved. Um, trying to find it. Obviously, there was Paperboy. <laughs> yeah. Robotron was kind of in there. It wasn't that great of a game, but it, you know, you were basically avo- uh, shooting and avoiding robots at the same time. And let's see, kind of going through some of these. Of course, like I mentioned before, there was Ghostbusters, one of the best games for the Commodore 64 because there was just so much interaction to it. Different scenes you could go to, you could travel around the entire city, and you would ba- use your ray guns to trap in ghosts and then put them into the, the trap box. It was just it, good I, stuff. I believe it was actually a lot like the uh, the Nintendo version, so both versions were, were very similar and actually a good game in my opinion as well. Yeah, and then one of my other favorites was Dig Dug. Basically, you're this guy that's digging into the ground <laughs> and uh, you you would you, win. You blow up. Yeah, you, you, yeah, little, yeah. you literally blow, uh, shoot your little hose out to these monsters uh-huh. And, and pump them up full pump of air. air. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> Whenever I played Dig Dug, I always like to pretend that I'm the monster and and I'm invading their space. <laughs> that's basically what you are. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They're just minding their own business, they were there first. living their lives, and you show up and you explode them in the most <laughs> slow, horribly, horribly painful way ever. Yeah, and you could make it even more painful by by starting the pump, but then stopping because then they would start deflating, and then you would start <laughs> inflating them back up again. It was hilarious. Of course, if you did that enough times, it would actually make them get loose. But oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, um, did you wanna did you wanna talk at all about uh, your day to day experience with it? What you would normally do aside from playing games? Well, most of the time, I ended up programming. Um, that was my big thing with the Commodore 64, was programming and a little bit of games, actually. Even back then, I wasn't very much of a gamer, but I did love some games, obviously. But I did a lot of learning with uh, the the basic code. And I actually went to the library, checked out books just for basic programming for the Commodore 64. Back then, the libraries had tons of books for programming. So that was my day to day. I I never really use it for much other than that because I was pretty young. <laughs> a good but, start to a, a a career in computing then. Indeed, like one of my biggest things was actually programming a full scale alarm clock with an address book, uh, with the the SX sixty four being the entire all in one unit. I ended up making one of the best alarm clocks you could possibly do with the full siren sounding warping sound going <laughs> up and down. It was like, you know, the, the Ghostbusters uh, siren? 
it was kind of like that, but even more warped. You would you would wake so, up to that? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I would have oh, a broken right. Commodore if I had to wake up to that. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> me in my sleep, you know, it's always you know I I'm such a heavy sleeper. So even then, back then, I I I had to make something that was a the most annoying thing in the world. <laughs> wow. And the only thing that would stop it was opening up the keyboard because on the SX64, the keyboard actually attached to the front of the, the case. So you'd actually have to take it off and hit the space bar to, to stop it. <laughs> wow. So some technical de- details about the Commodore 64. Uh, it was an AB computer that contained several sound and graphic features like sprites, high res, and multicolor. And, and that's where we see the VIC-2 chip really shine. Uh, I've saw some games with uh, parallax scrolling that um, I, I didn't see that until uh, I don't I don't know if the Sega Master System had it, but uh, I didn't see that really until until the Sega Genesis, which was years later. So that was that was really neat. Um, <clears throat> there were uh, several versions of the uh, Commodore 64. Uh, so the one that most people know about was the uh, C64A, or what people call the bread box version. It was a kind of a tan brownish. Um, the keys were were kind of brownish. Um, that's the that's the first version. Uh, there were some other versions in between, and they had different uh, different cases. The same same chip and everything, uh, same CPU and whatnot. It's still a Commodore sixty four, but they would just kind of uh, change the chassis around. Uh, I guess to quote unquote refresh the 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 product line um another notable one was the c64c and uh and another one was the c64g which i believe is the one that uh that uh eric was mentioning i, I know it was all white it, it kind of looked like an amiga and um it wasn't all contained within the keyboard it, it was contained within the keyboard but it was in the in the back portion of it was the was the um it was like extended out so you could sit a monitor on top of it. wasn't like the breadbox version was just a keyboard and the motherboard sat underneath that. So that was the C64G. Um, and then that uh, that was that game station that I was that I was uh, referring to uh, earlier on, which is the C64GS or uh, the C64 game station, which came with the uh, joysticks, um, but no keyboard. It was just meant for for playing games, um, and and that's it. So no floppy drive or anything like that. Just, uh, I believe there was a cartridge slot. Um, <clears throat> the CPU was actually a, uh, a MOS Technologies, uh, 6510 or the 8500. So it just depends on which model you had. Uh, they're, they're both clocked in at one megahertz. Although in Europe, they were, uh, clocked in at a little bit under a megahertz. So I believe it was something like, uh, 900 and oh boy i don't remember the exact one but it's 968 ish or so anyway 900 and something uh kilohertz so under a megahertz uh because of the uh of the pal um because of the because of it being pal <laughs> uh it dominated the home market and for a time it actually did better than the ibm pc uh and the apple II did um it was a very very popular machine so uh, it it could have it, it could have dominated everything uh, had it not been for some uh, you know questionable things that they did at Commodore, but uh, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> the plus four. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, despite having such a a meager CPU running at only one megahertz, um, part of the reason why it was able to do so well uh, 
uh, graphically and sound-wise was because it used custom integrated circuits for those. And part of the reason that they were able to sell it so cheaply, despite that, um, was because the company that made those integrated circuits um, was a division of, of Commodore, so they were pretty much built in-house. Instead of a disk operating system, it used CBM Basic, which I didn't know this until we uh, started researching for this podcast, but Basic stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code, which feels like a forced uh, backronym, if you ask me, but it is what it is. And that was its operating system, so to speak, and it used uh, Basic version 2. Since the disk drive has its own microprocessor, no memory space is dedicated to running the running a disk operating system. Um, this was also the case with other APIS, APIS systems like the Apple II and the TRS-80. Right, everything was loaded into ROM, and so remember we had that 64K to play with, so uh, BASIC, I believe, used 39K? Yeah, roughly around there. Roughly around there, right. Um, so, so you had that uh, to play with. Um, since disk drives were expensive in the UK and elsewhere, almost all programs in the UK were on cassette tape drive. Uh, in the US, uh, most programs were, were on disk. Uh, the, the disk drive unit was a little bit less expensive here. But uh, there were still some units that sold, uh, I believe it was in the very beginning, that that, that had the cassette drive option as well uh, that you could purchase for it. Um, so, but uh, I heard that uh, that tape drives are actually, quite frankly, uh, they were pretty brutal. So, oh yeah, they were they were very brutal. I mean, imagine playing a, a an actual cassette that usually would play music, putting data on it, and playing it at the same speed that you would play an audio music, and using that for a disc. <laughs> it it could take uh, ten to thirty minutes just to load a program. Uh, was there was there any loading screens or anything like that, Eric? That that you could that you would know when the program was going to be loaded. Um, there was, but it wasn't really all that useful. It would just be a blank screen until you finish loading the tape. And okay, so there were no percentages or, or any uh, like oh no time left or any estimates or anything like that. Nope, because no? it didn't. There know. were crazy wow. color rainbows <laughs> if a fast loader was employed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you had to sit there and just. And just just sit and and wait and wait until it loaded, and hopefully you started at the right place because if you didn't, <laughs> you'd have a, a a corrupted program. That's right. They had a counter. Um, could you tell us about that? Oh yeah, the uh, tape drive actually did have, as you said, a counter. So you would basically rewind re- rewind the tape to that zero point. You would reset the timer so that you would know where to go, and if you knew uh, a specific point in which the the program started at you would actually fast forward until it got to that specific point to start at and then you would start the loading from the tape and start playing so that you had that point of reference and then you'd have to stop it at the point that it was at the next program if you had multiple programs on the same tape it you know it, it was very very slow <laughs> and i guess that it was terrible. also prone to all the problems that normal cassettes are they wear out uh, with every use, if you make a copy, that copy isn't necessarily as good as the source that it came from. So after a certain point, I mean, would it just end up with uh, corrupted data based on the quality of the tape? Oh, definitely. Because, I mean, think of a modem, how it does that sound, 
the way that it does sound on a modem, the same kind of idea was used in tapes and how it recorded the audio to store the data. So if you copied it, that audio would degrade and it wouldn't be very good and it could actually cause corruption. And there's also the question of how much data can you store on a tape, which the answer is, well, it depends. How long does that tape go for? Exactly. Depending on if it's a 30-minute tape, a 60-minute tape, a 90-minute tape. Yep. Uh, you could probably store a good number of uh, programs on a single tape, but you'd, ha- you, you, you'd only be able to use one set at a time. So you would plan ahead and, you know, kind of just look at the tape and see how much was remaining before you'd flip it over to the next side to start recording programs, too. And it should be mentioned that it, um, using the tape, it was not random access. It wouldn't seek to various portions of the tape as needed. So you would type load, then you would hit play, and then it would slowly read all that stuff into memory. And then once it's in memory, then it starts running, and then it's not using the tape anymore after that, right? Right. Exactly like that. So that's why you had to be sure of where you started playing and then where you stopped playing if it had multiple programs on the same tape. I'm so glad I never had to deal with this. <laughs> I mean, we we tried this uh, with an emulator, and there are tape images, which now I want to open one of these up in an audio file just to hear all the modem-like noises. But uh, it really protects the... You, you, using it in an emulator really protects you from from that experience. Definitely. I, I I could say for for a fact, because, you know, the old tape drives that would hook up with this big fat cable, and you still had to manually manipulate the tape drive. It was just like a regular tape drive. You could play audio through it, you could hook up speakers to it, you could do anything with it. But it was primarily used for the Commodore. But you were privileged having a Commodore, because most computers back then that used tape drives, their interface was a regular audio cable. The Commodore had an actual uh, digital cable, and older tape, tape drives, they had what was known as a um, tone adjuster, which I'm still not quite sure what it actually did, but that wasn't required for the Commodore because of its digital interface. That is very true, because the Commodore did have a, a very unique adapter for that tape drive, and it, like I said, it was a big fat cable with a big multi-pin adapter that would plug in specifically to the Commodore. And depending on where you lived, it also um, that also uh, determined what the majority of your software came on. In the U.S., uh, floppy drives and disks weren't as expensive, so most people here had their data on floppies. But in in the U.K. and elsewhere, pretty much everyone had tapes because of how prohibitively expensive uh, floppy technology was. You, you know what it was too, uh, Chris, is that there was a lot of issues with the, the with the floppy drives, so they had so many production problems with the floppy drives that it it just a few that came out, and uh, it was pretty expensive, uh, especially also the demand for the for the floppy drives. So that that was another thing too, the production issues with them. Yeah, I, d- I don't know if I ha- experienced those problems myself, but I, I I do know that the Commodore floppy drives did have some problems. I actually had two floppy drives for the Commodore sixty four plus the portable 64, the SX-64, which had its own built-in floppy drive. But I had the Commodore 1541 floppy drive and the VIC-120 1541 floppy drive, which was labeled as the VIC-120, I think it was. So <laughs> it was an interesting combination. That's uh, that's really neat. And actually, 
I know you mentioned the 120, but uh, but I wanted to point out um, another another bit of technical detail for the Commodore 64 was that um, between the uh, there there was actually some compatibility between the the VIC 20, the Commodore 64, and the later release Commodore 128. Um, they they you could actually use some programs in uh, on on one and another, uh, but uh, there were there were some issues when you were running a Commodore 64 program on a VIC 20. Uh, since they had different memory mappings, so uh, that you had some programs that would use something like they would peek or poke the memory, and so since the memory mappings were different on the VIC-20 than they were on the Commodore 64, you could end up with a corrupted program. So that was just uh, something that um, to keep in mind when you were using different systems with uh, with the Commodores. Uh, you just had to uh, typically you just use it on the same system that it was made on, or or just keep it within the same. Uh, the, the the same Commodore family, right? Commodore 64, VIC-20. But you could, there was certain compatibility between each, uh, especially with the Commodore 128. They actually made it even more compatible with the Commodore 64 because of how many programs there were available uh, for the C64 that there weren't, there weren't as many for the, for the Commodore 128. So they, they, they did that as like a selling piece, you know, they made it uh, compatible with the Commodore 64 programs. It's not really something that we have to think about today, uh, since most of the our x eighty most of our programs are built around the x eighty six uh, microarchitecture. So we could run older programs unless we really tried to run you know some old legacy sixteen bit programs, etc. But for the most part, you could run a you could run a piece of software that was made for Windows XP on a Windows seven or a Windows ten machine uh, with minor issues depending on on which program but but you could generally run it on these other systems they were they they it wasn't quite the same so i i guess it was more like running it running a a playstation uh one soft piece of software on a playstation 2 yeah, you know so it's quite quite different but within the same uh same 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 family as far as commodore family but not not same unit itself yeah, and I can tell you where that some of those peaks and pokes came from. That was actually in part used to manipulate sound for the SID chip. So if you wanted to make certain sound waves, you would actually use peak and poke almost exclusively. Okay, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. And and actually, I I love the SID chip. If I could have a T-shirt that says "I love the SID chip," I <laughs> I would definitely have one. I should have one made. Um. That uh, the the sound that comes out of them uh, to me is just it's just amazing. But uh, actually, you know what? We do talk about this later on, so I probably should save save that uh, for for another time. So now that we've gotten through the uh, technical details, uh, how about how do we interface with the machine itself? Uh, what kind of inputs uh, do, uh, does it have? The Commodore sixty four has two game ports. So the the ones you would you would hook up your your joysticks your your mouse uh, light pen etc. So you had two of the ports. Um, you had the power connector. So um, so you would connect the uh, the power connector to that big block power supply that it had big beige block. Um, you had an expansion port to uh, connect cartridges. You had the TV connector that Eric was mentioning. Um, audio video to connect a monitor. Um, a serial bus to connect the disk drives, uh, or or the uh, printer or cassette connector, um, and uh, a user port to connect cartridges. 
uh, or a reset button or modems. So it's actually funny that I mentioned the reset button because that was a thing. Uh, the Commodore 64 didn't have a reset button. So uh, people actually made one for that. And that's where you would connect it. Um, so that was, that was an interesting piece that I, that I had read there. Why, why would you need to connect an, a reset button, a third-party reset button? But, yep, that's why. Yeah, because it only had a power switch. <laughs> so moving on to some interesting tidbits that uh, didn't fit into the other sections very well. Uh, we previously discussed that the Commodore had a digital interface for its tape connector. but and, and we also discussed that uh, other computers that use tape drives drives used an a regular standard audio interface. It should be noted that uh, for the Commodore, you could you you can get a digital to audio adapter, and with that audio connection, instead of getting instead of uh, getting a, a a tape drive, you can instead get an MP3 uh, and play it into the um, the audio input for the tape connector, and it will load the program that way. In fact, there are programs where you can select from a, a list of games and then hit the play button, and that's it. its whole purpose. Pick the game, send the audio. That's great. I bet you that was better than using a cassette tape without having to, uh, since you don't have to remember the time or yeah. write it down or whatnot. Definitely. Um, and you didn't have the problems with cassettes. The... Uh, uh, the Resident OS um, that the C64 ran on is actually called Kernal, K-E-R-N-A-L. Typically, the word is Kernal, K-E-R-N-A-L, but because in 1980, uh, Robert Russell misspelled the word in his notebooks, the name stuck. No Commodore 8-bit machine except the Commodore 128 can automatically boot from a floppy disk. Uh, but some software overwrites certain parts of BASIC to make them auto-loadable. So um, that, I thought that was interesting, too, because uh, even in the DOS era, I would make a boot disk. It would automatically boot from the boot disk. But in the Commodore 64, you actually had to specify the disk, as I had mentioned uh, earlier on. And so it wouldn't auto-boot from the from the disk. So I, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Um <clears throat> Commodore did not include a reset button on any of their computers until the CBM2 line, but there were third-party cartridges with a reset button on them, which I had mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, that was uh, I, I had never heard of a computer without a reset button, but uh, the Commodore 64, uh, there it is, amazing me again. <laughs> um, uh, another, another, and actually we had talked about this, and it's one of my favorite things to talk about on the Commodore 64 is... Uh, well, there were apparently two versions, two main versions of the SID sound chip. Uh, the original was the 6581, with the later one being the 8580. Now, there were some revisions between those two, uh, but those were the two major ones. Um, I was listening to various samples of uh, sound uh, from the demo scene um, and from games and everything. And from all these samples, I just seemed to like the 6581 more. Than the 8580, and apparently I'm not alone. I I was uh, reading comments that had people had posted on forums and everything, and, and some people were saying the same thing. They like the they like the 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 rawness, the raspiness of the 6581 versus the the uh, sort of see to me it sounded kind of muffled. But some other people were saying it was it was clear the 8580 version. So um yeah, you know take that as it may, but 
Uh, I just I just happen to like the way that the 6581 sounded. It it, it definitely sounded more uh, more raspy, more more tinny in my in my to my ears. It had more so, beef to it. Definitely. More beef. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to agree that 6581 was definitely the better one because you could do those very complicated sounds, especially the ones that were fast raising and lowing, like like stuff like that. And it was you know it was big. You couldn't do that quite well on the 8580. Right, right. Uh, listening to the same one side by side, I, I just, I always lean towards the 6581. So this is one of those cases where revising something didn't work out, in my opinion. Um, I'm sure other people disagree, but anyway, um, <clears throat> another really interesting thing that I saw was uh, people using the internet on a... Uh, Commodore 64. Now, it, it didn't have a full-blown browser, no flash, or anything like that, but it was interesting that they were playing Handman online, and uh, that they could reach uh, various PBSs, um, and uh, IRC chats, and things like that. So, um, of course, they had to use another machine to, to kind of perform that tunnel interface and everything, but it was very interesting that they, they could even do it, uh, on a, on, and this is all being done on a one megahertz machine. That was really interesting to see. Um... Someone had made a a cartridge with, and it was pretty much a computer on a cartridge, and it had the the uh, NIC interface with an empty EEPROM chip that you could load uh, various applications on. Like you could put an FTP server or client or um, IRC client on the ROM itself, um, and it was fun to see him uh, connect to IRC. And the way that it did it was it emulated being on a twenty four hundred baud modem. So when it he he demonstrated using IRC by going onto Twit Live's IRC channel with like 800 people in there, and the first thing it does is list all 800 users, and it can't show yeah. that much text on the screen, so tons of word wrapping, and it's a 2400 baud. So it just slowly listed them and listed them and listed them and listed them and listed them. <laughs> okay, now you can type. And on and on, right. Yeah, I I don't know if I could bear with that. I I, I know I had the three hundred baud modem for the the Commodore sixty four, but I don't know. I, I don't even know if it could handle a twenty four hundred baud. Really, <laughs> <laughs> another really interesting uh, tidbit uh, that Eric has actually been mentioning uh, this whole podcast, but uh, but um, because he was he owned one of these, but I thought that the SX sixty four, which a which was actually a portable version of the Commodore sixty four. Um, and portable for the 80s and for the early 80s. So, you know, big, big, big luggable thing. But anyway, um, portable version of the C64, it was the first portable to ever have a full color monitor display. So, um, you know, now when you open up your laptop and you're working on your Mac and whatnot, your MacBook Pro, just think of that uh, SX64 being the first one, first portable with full color display. I'm not sure it was 4K or anything like that, but. Maybe. I'd have to ask Jack Dermel. <laughs> oh, no. It was the same 16-bit color or 8-bit color. I don't remember how many it was. But, you know, it was the same thing. Just imagine a screen that was, what, 4 inches by 4 inches? It was pretty small. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, and I know Chris had mentioned uh, that he had used Geos. Uh, later versions of the Commodore 64 came bundled with Geos uh, since uh, all the other... Major manufacturers like Apple, they they had they had their Macintosh line with their Mac OS, and it was a full GUI operating system. 
and then you had IBM uh, PCs also coming out with uh, Windows uh, GUI operating system. So the Commodore 64 was coming with Geos, the GUI operating system with that, and also an online service called Quantum Link. So that was uh, uh, another thing, too, that the Commodore 64 was doing even back then. Um, and uh, actually, the last tidbit that I had found uh, that I thought was amazing, amongst many other things, was uh, <laughs> the game called Mood, which is actually Doom for the Commodore 64. So you know how Doom can be made to pretty much run on anything? Thermostat. The thermostat. Printer. Uh, yeah, anything. Toaster. Well, I thought the Commodore 64 would be an exception just because, you know, one megahertz. Yeah, come on, they, they can't do this. Certainly not. But, yep, there it is. Of course. Doom for Commodore 64. Mood. <laughs> I'm going to have to try that when we uh, get done with this, just, just just to see what it's like. Oh, yeah. And the really impressive version of the uh, the ZX Spectrum version of Doom. That was uh, really colorful. <laughs> um, that's pretty much all I have for tidbits. Well, I got a few that are that I, I, I have. Um, you would know that the Commodore 64, we've... We've spoken about it anyway. Having cartridges. Not all the cartridges were actually games. Um, some of the cartridges were actually expansions to the actual Commodore 64 itself. Um, for example, one of the cartridges that I use commonly was Simon's Basic. That one expanded the Basic uh, from Basic version 2.0 to an enhanced version of Basic that actually provided easier access to sound to the the, the chip. Um, graphics, sprite design, and stuff like that. It made the eight the kind of like the language a little bit more easy to work with, so easier to program those kind of types of things. Um, that was really cool because that was one of my favorite extensions to Basic back then. Another one that I used commonly was Fast Load because loading from a disc was you know it was pretty fast, but with Fast Load it loaded about. Uh, what you would usually take about a minute, maybe two, would end up loading in about 20 to 30 seconds. So that was a really big improvement. But fast load came with a few other things that, uh, that was rather interesting. It's just actually how I learned assemblies that certain editions of Epic's fast load came with not just a disassembler, but actually did come with an assembler built in. This was big because you could actually program assembly language on the Commodore 64. Um, so it wasn't just a improvement to loading disks faster, but it actually had certain features that, you know, you could actually write assembly code or disassemble an existing program and see its assembly code. Um, another one that I liked was, uh, what was it called? It was a speech synthesizer, voice messenger. It actually plugged into the cartridge slot and then it had a cable coming out of it that plugged into the the four-pin audio connector, just like the tape drive would plug into. And it would actually give you a full speech synthesizer. It was, you know, kind of robotic, but it had two voices. So you could actually make it talk to you, and it even had a full API that you could make it talk from basic code to just do anything you wanted to say. So that was really kind of cool. It was like a $50 cartridge back then, which was expensive for a cartridge. Did you make it say the uh, the one thing that everyone is required to make any speech synthesis program say? Oh, what's that? Would you like to play a game? 
play a game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, war, uh, that that movie actually, when, when did that movie come out? I think it was around the same time as the Counter 64, but maybe a little later. I, um, I don't remember. I can look it up. I think it was 84. Oh, no. I don't want to say 85. I think it was 84 or 85, yeah. <clears throat> but so, those, 83. Oh, 83. So, it was it was around the same time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, no, I did not. But I could have. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing that was actually a really rarity back then was cartridge expanders. I had a four-way cartridge expander. Uh so you could actually plug in up to four cartridges at a time, as long as none of them uh, override overrid the boot up, because some of the some of them you know the games would actually override the boot up. As lo- like fast load, uh, Simon's Basic, those were two were compatible. Um, the speed synthesizer was able to do it as long as you flipped the switch to make sure that it didn't load up its own special little thing, because was voice messenger. If you plugged it in and had it turned on to boot. It would actually come up with these pair of lips, these, uh, you know, lips that would actually motion out how it was talking. <laughs> it was Weird. Hilarious. Yeah. But that's, that's pretty advanced for such, uh, such meager hardware. Exactly. And, you know, it was, it was really cool. <laughs> I mean, uh, considering that we had, uh, video games for, I mean, how long, even up to the 360 where characters would be talking? And their lips would still just be flapping at a static pace, not anywhere in sync to what they were saying. Yeah, yeah. The uh, it wasn't great. I would say it, it 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 did try to sync up what it was saying because it only had so much resources to do it. But based on the the codec or what do you call it the I forget the lexicon the lexicon that the epics or the not epics was it epic no uh Kara. Uh, what Voice Messenger was doing was using a lexicon that was using a very robotic sound so that the lips could keep up. Hmm. So kind of kind of interesting stuff. Is um is there anything else that uh, you would like to cover that we um we may have missed, Eric? Um, there were there was like the uh the modems that did exist for the Commodore sixty four that they were. Used the same expansion slot, which is the cartridge slot. Um, that actually had the 300 baud modem at best that I can remember. And, you know, it wasn't that great. It was very, very slow. <laughs> One of the things about the modem is that I, I remember my dad telling me that he was paying his bills online through MCI net. Oh, yeah. Uh, back then on his Commodore 64. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was definitely the, a yeah, thing. Using the modem. Huh. That was mm-hmm. definitely a thing. <laughs> I used it for right. the early BBS days, but uh, it was interesting, definitely for sure. Especially I don't going know how over secure a these line. lines were, but uh, but you could you could pay your your bank statements and whatnot, pay your bills online. Uh, about as secure as a phone line is, is in general, which isn't very secure at all. But <laughs> more secure than just being out on the uh, general internet. I mean, sure, the government can wiretap you, uh, can wiretap phones more easily, but that's. Uh, there's no such thing as a, uh, a a network sniffer when it comes to a, a phone line. That is uh, completely untrue, actually. Uh, when you when it comes to a phone line, you've got an instant tap point already, no matter what you do. Hmm. And if they're listening to a modem, all they have to do is listen, and they're getting all the data back and forth. I stand corrected. <laughs> because there was no encryption back then. There was just 
uh, what is it? Analog audio going back and forth. True, true. <laughs> so in conclusion, um, several things that that went uh, for the Commodore 64. Um, well, it was very affordable. At one point, the stores were selling them for $199. And uh, that's an incredible price point when you're talking about a whole computer system uh, back in the 80s. So um, that was that was one of those things. Uh, it introduced many people to home computers. So as I had mentioned before, uh, there were lots of people who wanted to use a computer, but they had to use it at work or they had to use some kind of timeshare um, or they had to use it at school. So, so the, the Commodore 64 allowed a lot of people to, to use it at home. And because of that, and uh, the ability to play games and things like that, it got a lot of uh, children involved in computers as well. So it, it was something that, uh, that uh, they could learn. And then, um, well, I'm, I'm sure we have a lot of programmers now uh, that have the Commodore 64 to thank for uh, as it being their first machine. Um, so yeah, this was all much thanks to the Commodore 64. Uh, how about you, Chris? What do you what do you think? What were your takes on the Commodore? And uh, you know, any any last thoughts? Uh, anything else you want to add to to the Commodore? I'm glad it existed. I respect its place in history and its superiority uh, to what was available at the time. However, coming from the perspective of a 486 being my first computer. Um, I'm glad I never had to go through that. I'm glad I never <laughs> had to go through uh, a program taking 10 minutes to load. I'm glad I never had to go through uh, data being on a cassette tape. Um, while I'm kind of saddened that I missed that era, I think when it comes to technologies that I'm not nostalgic for, but I'm just learning about, I think I found the Amiga to be uh, much more fun and much more interesting. I, I can see how people... I uh, still love it to this day, being so nostalgic for it. But from being a complete newcomer to it, um, I don't personally, with the exception of uh, maybe playing a few games, and I might try to do a couple of chiptune covers on CyberTracker, I don't think I'm going to come back to it for much else. How about you, Eric? Well, I, I will say that the Commodore 64 was an interesting segue into the, P the, the IBM PC line because there was one more cartridge I didn't mention earlier because I wanted to itch, close with that. The CPM cartridge, which basically Ooh. was kind of like MS-DOS. So before I even got a, a IBM PC 286, um, I actually already kind of knew how to use it. <laughs> wow. So it was, it was a really interesting gateway into the future te technology that was coming. The CPM cartridge. Was that uh did that had did that include our additional hardware in that cartridge like perhaps a, a Zilog like a Z80 chip or something like that to be able to run CPM software or um yes actually because the the cartridge was able to basically add more memory if you needed to or other chipsets and other hardware that's how they ran actually it was all built in to the cartridge it was just an expansion to the computer very nice <laughs> how about uh, you euro um, well, I, uh, I, I definitely appreciate learning about it more now. Um, I'm kind of in that boat with you about the, um, uh, about, uh, starting off with a different machine. And, and so, you know, going back to this would be, uh, something, something that I probably wouldn't do. Um, but I am glad that now that I, now that I learn a little bit more about it, um, you know, my dad had one 
And uh, although I never used it or anything like that, now I, and now I know more about the system that he was using. So, um, so I, I can appreciate learning about it more. I would see it there, uh, sitting there. My, I would see my dad using it. I had no idea what was going on. And now I can appreciate it more. So, um, so yeah, this has definitely been a great learning experience for me. And my first machine was a 8088. So it, it was actually, uh, you know, uh, as far as years are concerned, it was older, but a uh, completely different platform. And so, um, and I was just using it to play games. If I had had the Commodore 64, I would probably have liked that even more. But, uh, but I didn't. And uh, yeah, that's it. But I'm 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 very glad that, that that I've had now the chance to learn more about the system. Maybe uh, you should show Vice to your dad. He might get a kick out of it. He might. He might. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting point about the 8088 and the 8086s because I actually went from the Commodore 64 to the 8286 because back then the 8088 and the 8086 weren't as good in most opinions, and the price point was much higher. <laughs> so yeah, right. Well, then I think that uh, wraps this up, if nobody has anything else. That's it. That's all I got. All right. Well, uh, Eric, thank you again, as always. Um, You, as usual, have been most insightful and were a great addition uh, to this episode. And um, I thank you. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. Next time we'll ask you about the, uh, how that garage uh, project is going. (laughs) (laughs) Slowly but surely. (laughs) All right, uh, that's rad. Good night, everybody. Good night.